Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Tuesday, December 13th. Big news coming out of the White House today. Uh, President Biden is going to very publicly sign the Defense of Marriage Act. This is the law, you know, um, that hopefully will keep at least some people protected most of the time if and or when this Supreme Court knocks down the uh, Obergefell decision that um, gave the right to gay marriage just like they gave the right to a woman's right to autonomy with the privacy. And, yeah, they threw that out. And Clarence Thomas said, oh, by the way, you know, we're saying that the reasoning on Roe v. Wade was bad, and that's why we are striking it down. But, you know, guys, I have to tell you, we use this same reasoning on gay marriage. So, hey, who wants to challenge that up next? Since we have a Supreme Court that was basically put in place by the Federalist Society with an agenda, we shouldn't be surprised that they are now carrying that agenda out, which is to restore some kind of fictional fairy tale idea of what Christian values are. No, you know, gays, forget about marriage. I mean, gays really shouldn't even be now, should they? And the interesting thing about the Defense of Marriage Act is that it also um, proclaims that um, interracial marriage has got to be protected. Clarence Thomas didn't talk about that one. I wonder why. But here, let me clarify once again what this Bill Biden signing is. This is not a federal law saying that gay marriage is legal and must be respected everywhere. No, this is not that. This is a law that says if the Supreme Court strikes down the ruling that protected gay marriage, what would happen then is that just like we saw with the issue of abortion, every state could make their own laws, which is why in some states, There is no abortion. In some states, there are restrictions. And then in states like Illinois and California and New York, a woman actually gets to make her own decisions without the government. So if the Supreme Court moves to strike down their protection for gay marriage, the states could do whatever they want to. And likely uh, some of them will move to make gay marriage illegal, take it off the books. Um, there have been talks about reinstating basically anti-gay laws like, you know, sodomy used to be a crime. Maybe they, maybe they should bring that back. Anyway, it's going to be a nightmare. And what this new law, the Defense of Marriage, does, if you're a gay couple and you get legally married in a state that recognizes your rights to do so, and then you travel to a state that no longer recognizes that right, that you are protected. You are a gay couple. You get married in the state of Illinois, 
and you travel to a state that bans it. Oh, let's, for an example, talk about Vicki Hartzler's state. You know, the congresswoman from Missouri that broke down in tears, begging her fellow Congress people not to vote for the Defense of Marriage Act, because we all know marriage is between a man and a woman. And, oh, can't they just do the right thing? I don't know. And then, of course, we got the TikTok audio from her nephew, who is openly gay. And he explained to her, he explained to her that she had a couple of ideas that were a little off base. He actually said in a later posting, his name is Andrew Hartzler. In a later posting, He said that his family had put him through conversion therapy, which is supposed to be in most, at least in most states, illegal now. That's where you send a gay kid if you don't want them to be gay anymore. And um, they're supposed to pray the gay out of the kid. Because we know that works. Um, So long story short. The Democrats, President Biden, have done what they could with the power and numbers that they have right now. This is not what I think we need, which is a federal law that just says, you know what? Two people are in love. They should be able to get married. Unless you say, oh, well, you know, they could get a civil union. There are protections and 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 societal, societal expectations that come with being married more so than being partners or, you know, domestic partners or in a civil union. There's some estate things and there are some legal things and there are other laws that come into play that give you certain more power if you're actually married. Plus, if two people love each other, why shouldn't they get married? If they want to do so. Anywho, President Biden is going to be signing that very publicly. Um, There is a huge crowd gathered outside the White House for this. It is. um, It's a big day. It's a very big day. So we've got the Defense of Marriage Act that's about to be signed. Into law. And uh, President Biden this morning made a big statement about inflation. We are going to be talking at 2.30 with Terry Savage. I want to talk to her about, you know, I it, this, I find this whole thing really confusing. It's like, oh, inflation's bad. We've got to get it under control. So let's raise interest rates. Fine. Oh, interest rates are making life difficult and nobody can buy a house anymore. And and then in the Wall Street Journal today, you know, because interest uh, inflation is coming down now, the headline was slow growth is the new big concern, not inflation, slow growth. Well, if you raise interest rates to bring down inflation, don't you slow growth? Isn't that how inflation comes down? (sighs) Terry Savage is going to answer my questions. And if we have time, the other thing that I want to ask her about is Elon Musk not I don't want her to weigh weigh in on any of um, 
his political leanings or his crazy antics. But, you know, he is head of SpaceX, head of Tesla, head of Twitter. And it seems that his bizarre behavior, his seemingly... What's a, I'm trying to think of a word that's not too pejorative. That he's, let's, let's just say he appears to be a loose cannon. You know, Tesla stock shares are falling. And again, I read in this morning's Wall Street Journal that most analysts, oh, there was a headline, you know, like even at half the price it was before, Tesla is still a no-buy stock. NASA met with executives from SpaceX, you know, and and they wanted to know if they wanted to know if they could count on them. When you've got a very public leader who is visibly and publicly erratic, what does that say about the companies? And I'm sorry to say, I don't know about Tesla, but when it comes to SpaceX, I don't know that the board would have the ability to either get rid of Elon Musk or diminish his role. Because a lot of times what these entrepreneurs do, like Elon Musk, is they get people they know they can count on to be on the board. They, if the, if somebody like Elon Musk is in a position, and a lot of times these big CEOs are, to suggest new board members, or to slate new board members, who are they going to pick? Of course, they're going to pick people who rubber stamp what they want to do. That's how their egos work. They're not looking at this board and saying, how can I have a diverse board that brings a lot of different opinions to the table and will really benefit my company? No, not not egomaniacs like that. They want a board that simply supports whatever they want to do. So NASA NASA called the people in charge of SpaceX and they had a meeting and it was like, you know, we guys, we need to know that your company is not going to function as erratically as your boss. Supposedly, the higher ups at SpaceX did their darndest to reassure NASA. But I mean, do you really want to be in business with somebody like that? The question is starting to be, will Elon Musk not only destroy Twitter, but drag down Tesla and SpaceX in the process? And frankly, he seems to be doing that right now. I have to believe that with the share prices dropping sooner or later, even if Tesla's board is a rubber stamp board, that they've got to, they've got to realize that something has to happen here. Anyway, we have other news to talk about, and I do want to share with you uh, what President Biden had to say about inflation. We'll get to all of that right after a break. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Jonas Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Uh, quick note. Um, Andy said we got a caller. Yes, it is the Marriage Protection Act. And part of what it is doing, the Marriage Protection Act that Joe Biden is supposed to sign, is it amends the federal judicial code 
so that judges have certain rules to decide any question pertaining to the Defense of Marriage Act. Okay, we got that clear. Thanks. (laughs) But uh, technically, it's the Marriage Protection Act. Okay. one other thing uh, before we get to what President Biden had to say about inflation. You know, I've talked to Bob Morgan. We I was begging you to fill out witness slips because uh, there were hearings. There has been a hearing, one hearing so far. State Representative Bob Morgan, who represents the Deerfield area, he and his family were in Highland Park on July 4th for the parade when the um, shooting started. He has proposed um, a couple of measures that would ban assault weapons, ban high-capacity magazines, give the Illinois State Police a little bit more support to be able to go after illegal guns coming into our state. There was a hearing on that yesterday. One of the people who testified was the mayor of Highland Park, Nancy Rotering. And um, we saw her a lot that day as she and the first responders tried to figure out what happened and tried to keep everybody calm and safe while the shooter was tracked down and arrested. She was one of the people who testified in Springfield to try to get legislators to support House Bill 5855. Um, I want to share with you just a little bit of what Nancy Rotering had to say in Springfield yesterday. Listen to this. Highland Park's story includes eight-year-old Cooper Roberts, who just went to a 4th of July parade with his family and as a result missed the beginning of third grade because he was still hospitalized with a severed spinal cord, shredded aorta, esophagus, and liver, and was learning about living forevermore in a wheelchair with PTSD. He's eight years old. Our story includes two-year-old Aiden McCarthy, still asking for his mom and his dad, who died shielding their only child during a family outing to celebrate freedom. And our story includes the Toledo family, all 17 of them across three generations, who directly experienced what happened to their grandfather's head when he was hit by high-velocity gunshot. Bob Morgan was at that parade with his family as well. And um, for most of us who support some kind of sensible gun rules, it's it's something that we know intellectually that we should support. For people like Bob Morgan and Nancy Rotering and some of the other folks who were present that day, Getting this kind of legislation passed might feel like a day late and a dollar short, but they want to make sure nobody goes through the trauma they went through. They don't want to see another kid in a wheelchair or a kid orphaned or a family having to witness the mutilation. These high-capacity rounds are like, they're not just like the bullets like you see in, you know, TV shows. Oh, somebody's hit with a bullet and they, you know, they have a, they put pressure on their shoulder. They have a little hole. These high, this high capacity, powerful ammunition is almost like an explosion in your body. 
In Uvalde, some of the kids had to be identified by dental records because there wasn't enough left of their face to tell who they were. We've got to do this. If we can't get it done on the federal level, and sadly it appears that we cannot, then at least the state of Illinois needs to take action on this. Bob Morgan is hoping that in the lame duck session, legislators are going to be back in Springfield January 4th, and he is hoping in that lame duck session that we can get this passed and get it on the books. And if I will try to keep an eye on this, if there is any more need for witness slips, we've got to come out in force, folks. I mean, I know it is a, it is an unscientific poll and it, you know, it doesn't mean that if there's more people against it than for it, that that's how the vote's going to go. But sometimes the people who don't want any gun regulation are far more motivated than those of us who think that sensible, common sense stuff will prevail whether or not we're a part of it. That's a lesson we've already learned in politics is we've got to be a part of it. I told you a couple of days before this hearing, there were 17,000 people who'd filed witness slips who said, oh, we don't need an assault weapons ban. And 10,000 some who said, yeah, we do. <clears throat> if this comes around again, we are going to turn out in force. Okay. We are going to turn out in force. Everybody within the sound of my voice is going to do a witness slip. Also want to talk before we get to Terry here. We want to hear what President Biden had to say uh, about inflation today. Um, this is this is the beginning of his remarks today. Listen to this. We learned last month's inflation rate came down, down more than experts expected. In a world where inflation is rising at double digits in many major economies around the world, Inflation is coming down in America. In fact, this new report is the fifth month in a row where annual inflation has fallen in the United States. Inflation outside from food and energy, uh, a key measure of, uh, that economists use, also fell. Make no mistake, prices are still too high. We have a lot more work to do, but things are getting better, headed in the right direction. Most Americans can see the progress driving down the street, finding relief at the pump, as gas prices fall. Gas prices are now lower than they were a year ago, and half the gas stations selling gas at, are selling gas at $3.09 or less. The most common price for gas stations across the country is $2.99. The decline in gas prices is giving consumers a break. They need helping them keep uh, our economy going. We have a, a two-car family. They're saving hundreds of dollars a month. It's a big deal. Today's report contains another piece of good news. Food inflation has slowed last month, providing much-needed relief for millions of families at the grocery store. This is welcome news for families across the country as they get ready for the holiday celebrations and for family dinners. It's also important that we put today's news in a broader context. When I took office, we inherited a nation with a pandemic raging and an economy that was reeling. We acted quickly and boldly to vaccinate the country and to put in place a, a new economic strategy. A strategy built on an economy that was based on from the bottom up and the middle out. Now, 21 months later, we can see how our, our economic plan is working. We've added every single month, every single month of my presidency, we've added jobs. 
total of 10,500,000 new jobs. 750,000 of them are manufacturing jobs. Where is it written, as I've heard me say it before, and I apologize for repeating it, where is it written that America can't lead the world again, once again, in manufacturing? Hey, works for me. You know, let's get more chip plants here. You know, let's build more widgets. Like I said, we're going to be uh, joined by Terry Savage here in just a couple of minutes um, because, you know, it just seems like, and I, you know, I I hesitate to say this is just anti-Biden sentiment, but it appears that no matter what the good news is, there's a bad news that counters it. Oh, we added 200,000 jobs last month. Oh, but that means, um, you know, that means wages are going to go up and that means that costs are going to go up and that means that inflation is going to go up. It just seems like to me that what what is the scenario here that we're all rooting for? Because it seems like whatever the problem is, inflation's going up. Oh, we bring it down. Oh, that's bad. Slows growth. Well, um, you know, interest rates will uh, come down then or won't go up as high. I don't, it just seems like no matter what thing happens, it's a bad thing. Inflation comes down. Now we're worried about growth slowing and growth slowing means fewer jobs. It's all very puzzling to me. And hopefully Terry Savage will straighten me out because she's good that way. (laughs) We'll be back with more after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by my good friend, Terry Savage. You can find all of her writing at terrysavage.com. You can also read her in the Chicago Tribune, where she still has a column, uh, though the Chicago Tribune (laughs) doesn't have too many of those anymore, so let's value the ones that they still carry. Uh, Terry is here, as always, to answer all of my exceedingly basic questions about the world of finance. But first, how are you, Terry? I am glad to be here. Um, there are a lot of us columnists at the Tribune still. <laughs> it sends a little a different direction. You know, we all have to read something from different points of view. My point of view is always money. Just the savage truth. That's all you get. Speaking of which, okay, Terry, as I was saying to the audience, it seems like no matter what happens, it's bad. Um, we were worried about inflation, so the Fed starts raising interest rates, and inflation starts coming down. And now all of a sudden today in the Wall Street Journal, I see this headline, slow growth is the big worry now, not inflation. It just seems like no matter what, no matter what we do, what problem we solve, we create the new, the next problem. Um, so what's the solution? That's what's always, always has fascinated me about the economy. It's like trying to pin a tarp down over an octopus. One leg or another shoots out from one to the side. And you're always running around trying to tuck it back in. We had some very good news today. We had news that inflation, although it was up, was up less than had been feared, the consumer price index in November. 
Um, and so it, the index climbed by uh, 6% without food and oil. I know nobody was without food and oil. It was 7.1% gain in November year over year. Economists had been predicting and fearing 7.3%. And last month was 7.7% increase in inflation year over year. So we're down to, quote, only 7.1% year-over-year inflation, and it shows that what the Fed's been doing has been working. Now, the stock market and the economy are a little bit different. You think of the stock market as a barometer of the economy. But if, in fact, what the Fed does is slow the economy in order to slow inflation, then that will slow economic growth, and that's not such a great thing for stocks. But... Today, the stock market said, that's okay. We're not going to worry about that. We're just so glad the Fed won't have to do too much more damage. And the market closed up 137 points, 138 points. And we're still over 34,000 on the Dow. So today was good news was good news for a change. And here's another thing I don't understand. Um, It would seem that adding jobs is a good thing. You know, adding jobs. We've added 200,000 jobs this month. We've added... 300,000 jobs this month, and then all of a sudden I'm reading, oh, I don't know, we're adding too many jobs. That means inflation's going to go up again. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. Why is everything good, bad, or at least has no, a bad it side? Wasn't the jobs. It wasn't the jobs that were bad. It was the wage hikes that were bad. And, yes, I do recognize that wages have to go up to keep up with inflation. It's kind of like a spiral, vicious spiral. And the concern is that when you get wage gains, baked into the cost of doing business that requires business to raise prices. And therefore, you have this ongoing inflation. And let's just be very clear. Inflation devastates all of our financial plans. Um, There's a generation, a bunch of generations, too young to remember the early 80s, but I do. And let me give you a simple fact. It's called the Rule of 72. Divide any number into 72, and you get the the resulting answer is how long it will take for that number to be cut in half or conversely to double. Let me just put it this way. If you have 3% inflation divided into 72, it means that your money will lose half of its spending power in about 25 years. But if you have 7% inflation, divide that into 72, And it means your money loses half its spending power in 10 years. So if you get a fixed pension check and that's what you're planning to live on, thank goodness Social Security's indexed for inflation. It lags a little, but it is indexed. But most people who got pension checks or took an annuity and said, oh, great, I can get $2,300 a month, that'll do it. Well, that spending power at 7% inflation, which we have right now, will be cut in half in 10 years. And that's why inflation is so devastating, especially to those on fixed incomes or on low income. Is in, when inflation is present, is it across the board, Terry? Um, you know, I know everybody talks about how bread is more expensive and a car is more expensive. Is it is it across the board with everything, or are there any things that we buy that are inflation-proof or, or, or not subject to inflation? Or does it just well, depend on the company? Like the, the company may decide rather than, you know, if your box of cereal 
um, costs a dollar and there's a 7% inflation rather than going increasing the price of cereal by 7%, they could eat that, at least in the short term. And then they would have no profits and everyone would sell their stock. But you, you, you actually, Joan, in your lovely, simple way of asking questions, <laughs> you put your finger on it. So sometimes prices go up, which we call inflation, because of this lack of supply. So, for instance, a couple of years ago in the pandemic, when everybody didn't want to take the train and bought used cars, prices of used cars soared. And notably, they are coming down dramatically in recent days. Typically, technology brings prices down. So TV sets, you know, if you told someone 30 years ago that they could get a 60-inch TV set for $399 on a Black Friday sale, they would have said, what, what, what? So Mm -hmm. technology typically brings prices down, except that, of course, we have those chip shortages and supply chain mix-ups. That was why the Fed initially thought that inflation would be kind of temporary uh, or transitory, as they said, because they figured, well, once we get our supply chains under control, prices will come down again the way they should because of technology. But now then we have the distortions of gasoline, although oil prices are down dramatically. So energy is coming down and things that are made uh, that were really in shortages because of the pandemic are bouncing back. Lumber prices have come down, for example, from the height of the pandemic when everybody said we'll stay home and remodel. So part of it is the market forces and part of it is supplies and part of it is the tremendous demand. What's going up more now, except for food prices, uh, gasoline prices are coming down. What's going up more now is services because don't try and take your dog to the vet. When can you get an appointment? Or try, how about hospital shortages of nurses? Not, not medicines now, but nurses, staff, people, restaurants still saying, yeah, I know there's a whole section of empty tables. We just don't have a server for that section. So mm-hmm. you have to wait a half hour. So services where people are now not wanting to work or demanding higher wages are the ones currently most hit most uh, in, in terms of inflation. So... With inflation seemingly getting lower, getting we seem to be getting a handle on it, the Fed is supposed to make an announcement this week. Is there any chance that they will lower the interest rate, Terry? I would bet you all the money I have that they will not lower the interest rate. Uh-oh. You know, I was coming back to your previous question. I, I bought butter, the same butter I always buy, four sticks of butter. It was close to $6 a pound. And I thought, are they paying the cows more? <laughs> Seriously. If, if mm-hmm. you have a dozen eggs, I mean, even if you don't buy super jumbo eggs, are they paying the hens more? Well, the grain costs more. But grain prices aren't up that much. Transportation costs were up a lot. I, I just want to acknowledge that not all inflationary price increases can be tracked directly to a reason And part of what is so insidious about inflation is it gives cover for some businesses to raise prices and make more profits, in fact. Um, The Fed, to go back to your question, though, is definitely not going to cut rates. They're not even likely to pause, which everybody is hoping they will. It will most likely be a 50 basis point increase, and it will be announced tomorrow. By this time tomorrow afternoon, Everybody will be going, okay, 
they, I think they'll be going. If they did 50 basis points, they're getting close to where they said they were going to be. Maybe we can exhale now. And that's what kind of the stock market's been up lately, thinking we've got to be getting near the end of the Fed rate increases. Well, but if, if everything is going according to plan and what they've done so far has worked, why can't they stop? 7% is still too high, Joan. 7% is still too high. If you're okay. living on a fixed check, either your, if it's a, your wages, you, you're noticing that it doesn't buy groceries. It doesn't buy 7% inflation cuts the value of your spending power of your money in half in 10 years. That's a time horizon. We all kind of have our fingers crossed. We're going to see. And when you see, you can't go to the grocery store. You can't. So even though gas prices are coming down, those are the most obvious ones. But there's a lot of other costs, whether it'll be your heating bill this winter, whatever it is, your money doesn't go that far. They have to kill 7% inflation. They want to get it down to 2%. That's tolerable. That's not noticeable. But 7% inflation is like thinking it's summer and going out and finding there's a snowstorm. It really hits you in the face. Would if it if would two or three percent inflation year by year be considered optimal? Yes, it would be considered tolerable and optimal by this Federal Reserve. The money has supply has to grow a bit. Um, populations grow. I mean, economists have great debate about this. Two or three percent would be tolerable. The Fed would be doing handstands, but right now it's not happening. Rents get baked in. You sign in the lease. And shockingly, it's 14% higher than, and people are doing that. Maybe not now, but in the summer. That means those higher rents are locked in for a year or maybe two years. So inflation, you, you sign a union contract. Maybe it's going to be the, the you know, truck drivers. Maybe it's going to be the longshoremen, whatever it is. Those wage increases are baked into the cost of everything. And that means prices will work their way through the system and continue to move higher. So it would be a shock if we just ran into a wall. There was zero inflation. I mean, we could stop inflation by stopping the economy. The trick is to slow the economy, slow demand, and and let things cool off and get the inflation idea that everything's going to be more expensive next month, next year, out of people's heads. And that's hard to do. Okay, we need to take a break. Um, I have more questions for you. I want, I want to talk to you about how, when you've got a leader who is behaving erratically, how that affects a company. You know, Elon Musk has just been a nut job when it comes to Twitter, but that's having ripple effects on SpaceX and Tesla. I want to, I want to talk to you about, you know, what, how boards function and what, what if any point they step in. I'm talking to Terry Savage. We're going to continue our conversation right after a break. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. You're listening to WCPT820 because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by our favorite financial expert, Terry Savage. You can find all of her writing at terrysavage.com. You can even uh, ask her a question. 
on the website. And, of course, you can read her in the Chicago Tribune. Terry, Elon Musk, you know, I'm, I saw something. I didn't get a chance to read the article. I just glanced at the headline, but it said some um, financial expert was saying, you know, even if it loses half of its value, I still wouldn't recommend you buy Tesla stock. NASA supposedly just called a, an emergency meeting with the leaders at SpaceX to say, like, hey, guys, can we rely on you? Like, what's going on here? At what point does a, does a CEO's behavior become intolerable? The man owns the company. He bought it. There's no public good. There's no SEC. There's no real regulators except for the general aspects of fraud and legal, you know, law of doing business. If you don't like it, you don't use it. But the fact is, Elon but- Musk is eccentric and he's a genius and he's done all these things. It's a huge story. But Elon Musk, Joan, I, I said she text, you probably didn't get it, but Elon Musk is not the headline today. The headline today is Sam Bankman-Fried, who was just arrested. <laughs> the guy who was supposed to testify willingly in front of Congress today, but instead was hanging out in the Bahamas and had to be arrested and extradited. That guy? That guy. Now, oh. that's fraud. That You know, it's one thing. Look, the Supreme Court's in the middle. Let's pick all these things on a continuum. There are some great legal and uh, important philosophical questions about what right does a private business have to decide who to serve. For example, you remember the the cases of the baker that went all the way to the Supreme Court, as I recall, the, that would refuse to make bake wedding cakes for same-sex couples. Then there's the case of what right does the clerk at a drugstore that you frequent who's in the pharmacy department, have the right to say, I'm not going to give you the morning after pill, even though it's legal in your state. And then there is the right of, there are some well-known companies that the Hobby Lobby, for instance, are not open on Sunday because they're privately held and they decide that that's their Sabbath and they're not going to be open and they make their own policies. Now, the question before the Supreme Court, and it's a different Supreme Court than previous cases have been decided, including what right does a woman have to control her own body? These are all questions that have been sort of, that are are really profound questions for our democratic society. I'm not going to give you what I think the answers are right now. But now, now Twitter is a private company owned by Elon Musk. Does it must it be fair to everyone? I don't know. Must the okay, wedding cake okay but let's set Twitter aside. Tesla is a publicly traded company, and his well, that, erratic behavior with Twitter is affecting Tesla's stock. At what point does the board say, Elon, you're, you're more damaging to this country, to this company, than you're worth? Um, we want well, to change. Who has the control? And as I recall, as I recall, and I believe Elon controls Tesla as well. So uh, if he has the votes to control the company, then the only opportunity for someone who doesn't like it is to sell the stock. Now, if, if someone said there's a massive national interest in SpaceX, well, we have NASA. They can put rockets up without SpaceX. They've chosen to do it more efficiently. Um, and it, to the extent that they choose not to do it, then SpaceX will have problems. But 
but your responsibility as a shareholder, if it's a public company, unlike Twitter, which is no longer a public company, you can sell the stock. Nobody says you have to be exposed to the, the antics of a CEO who, whatever he might be doing, you know, who might be involved in politics or who might have uh, escapades of his own. Uh, lots of times people just sell the stock. Because, and, and I'm not just talking about you and me selling 100 shares. We're talking about big institutions. With uh, like pension, pension funds and things pension like that. Pension funds could make the decision. Right. But that's when it's a public company. Twitter is not a public company. And we'll just have to see. This, is, this man is a genius and, and he may be erratic. And there are a whole lot of social things to discuss. But today's headline, no kidding, and, and it's going to be all over the news tonight, is the largest Ponzi scheme, the largest scam perpetrated since Madoff. So you don't think Sam uh, Friedman, Bank, Bank Friedman, you don't think he was just somebody who got in over his head? You think it was designed to defraud? Guess what? That The carefully curated image of Sam Bankman Fried has been of the boy wonder, maybe a little messy haired, maybe a little bumbling. But what the government laid out, and I listened to the entire press conference today, was a deliberate fraud, that's the allegation, from the very beginning, where money was transferred from customers' accounts at FTX into his controlled Alameda trading and used for everything from buying homes in the Bahamas to making political contributions to get a new regulatory system, which would have given him the opportunity uh, to change the market, something that was fought bitterly by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which I, full disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of. So it's not the first I've heard of Stan Bates, but this will not be the last. This is, according to the U.S. government, he not only defrauded the people who invested and put their money into trade in, in this uh, trading company, FTX, but the investors who supported him in investing in the company itself not trading, uh, fraudulent, deceived them, used the money for other purposes, took money, borrowed money on, under fraudulent uh, uh, representations, and then stole customer money to try and make good on the gains while continuing to go after more capital and better so we could make good. It's a, a definition of a Ponzi scheme where you pay off the newer, inv- the, the early investors with money that you scam from new people. This is going to go down in history as one of the big frauds. And yeah, what makes it so amazing is he doesn't look that smart. Yeah. Well, there was testimony, not from Sam, but from John J. Ray, who was um, also part of this, or at least was brought in, brought brought in in after the fact, wasn't he? He was brought in after the the Enron mess. Mm -hmm. He is the court trustee of the bankruptcy, who is very, very experienced. Yeah, because he was, I heard part of his testimony. Mm-hmm. And he told members of Congress today that even though this was a supposedly a multi-billion dollar company, they did all of their accounting on QuickBooks. And he said, you know, I'm not here to trash QuickBooks. QuickBooks has a place and it's good, but it's not the kind of thing that a billion dollar company relies on to keep its books. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, how did this Sam Bankman-Fried pull this off? Um, believe me, 
only one person called the whistle on him publicly and in front of Congress. And that happens to have been Terry Duffy, the chairman and CEO of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, who told Congress exactly, he, he didn't detail the Ponzi scheme, but he told him he called him a fraud. So wow. everybody, that's the definition of, one, of a scam. Everybody gets suckered in. Wow, wow, wow. Incredible. So, so you know, so, but, so, so people aren't going to get their money back. I mean, I read I heard on CNN this morning that um, that the, the company donated millions to politicians, millions. This wasn't just yes. a few here and there. Behind George Soros, he was the largest donor to both political parties. Now, this is interesting. This will be very interesting. The minute it came out that he well, the company went bankrupt before, obviously, before this indictment. Many politicians said, oh, yes, we did. Well, we didn't really know, so we're giving that to charity. The question is, I think they might be forced to come up with that money and give it back since it was ill-gotten gains of a fraud. So there'll be all the, the job of Mr. Ray, the trustee in bankruptcy, just like Madoff. You know, most of the people in Madoff have gotten most of their money back. It took a long, long time. But the, the trustees in that bankruptcy went after people it was a very complex situation, but a 90 some plus percent of the money, not the opportunity that was lost in the years in between, but people got their money back to a great extent. The question is, where will this trustee go to, to suck this money back from the politicians who received campaign contributions from the properties that were bought in the Bahamas from where? And that's going to be a, a long, messy, and very public job, even while he's being tried for fraud. Wow. Wow. It's uh... so again, a warning, everybody. If it sounds too good to be true, it's not true. Let me leave you with this. I know we're coming down to the end. You savers out there who have been uh, really taken to the cleaners by inflation, people who really watch that their money doesn't go far enough and who have money in the bank where you're trying to keep it safe from all the stuff we're talking about. The U.S. government is selling six-month IOU treasury bills at nearly 4.7% interest. So all you have to do is go to the treasury website every Monday morning. There's a treasury bill auction. If you go to terrysavage.com, and I don't sell anything. The treasury doesn't advertise this. The big buyers at the auction are the institutional banks and multinational lenders and so forth. So you can participate in that. Go to terrysavage.com. There's under financial links on the right-hand side. Scroll down. There is how to buy treasury bills. It's the same account. Joan, you and I talked about how to buy savings bonds mm-hmm. when they were yielding over 9%. You can do this. It's safe. It's secure. And, uh, it, you know, it's a circus out there uh, with not only, you're right, Elon Musk is creating somewhat of a circus. Uh, there's a fraud component. That's for sure. We know now today uh, in the uh, crypto world. So you don't have to do any of those things. You could buy safe, secure, six-month U.S. Treasuries and get well over 4.5%. And, you know, that's called chicken money, money you can't afford to lose. That is the only kind of money I have, Terry Savage. Well, Thank you so much. So for being here. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations and I can't wait till I can see you in person one of these days. Absolutely. We'll make it happen. Thanks, John. 
The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I am joined this hour by Rex Hupke, formerly of the Chicago Tribune, now columnist for USA Today. Welcome, Rex. How are you? Well, I'm great. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. You know, I was talking uh, to my partner, Ray, uh, I don't know, right after I spoke to you about being on the show. And the first thing Ray said to me is, hey, is he going to do that Rex rocks, Rex stinks thing? And I said, well, uh, I don't know. You know, he's not local. He's national now. So I don't know how he could pull it off. But you did pull it off. Talk about how it's going. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited. So uh, anyone who read me at the Tribune remembers we would do this uh, insult the columnist holiday food drive uh, working with the Chicago Food Depository, uh, Greater Chicago Food Depository. And uh, and that was always fun and, and just amazing. You know, the people were just ridiculously generous and, and stuff. So uh, so at USA Today, obviously, you know, we have the Chicago audience, I hope, and but we also have a national audience. So um, I partnered uh, with uh, Feeding America, which is a national organization that provides uh, food and support to food pantries. It's about 200 food pantries across the country. So they cover every inch of, of the U.S. and Puerto Rico. And it's a, it's, a real, it's a really good organization. And so they were able to set up a donation page which sorts donations by zip code. So if you're in Chicago and you're donating to the Insult the Columnist Holiday Food Drive, the money that you donate is going to the Greater Chicago Food Depository. If you're in L.A., it's going to whatever the nearest food bank is uh, to you, if you're in New York, et cetera. So, you know, wherever you happen to be, uh, the money goes by zip code to the food bank closest to you, which I really, I was really excited that uh, that was an option. So um, it kind of allows people, no matter where they are, to chip in and, and help people in their own communities. I'm so glad that you were able to figure this out because I figured I figured, you know, you would just have to let it go because I just I didn't um, I couldn't figure out because I'm not very bright. I couldn't figure out how you would take what you had done before and scale it up to a national audience. But gosh, darn it, Rex, you figured it out. I'm so proud of you. I, I can't. I can take zero credit for figuring anything out. Frankly, it was the um, <laughs> it was the folks at Feeding America who t- who were able to just hand very handy that they had this uh, you know platform and and we were able to to pull it off. I, uh, I I would love to say that it was my idea to come up with this, but nope, not at all. So I'm just happy to be the you know. Uh, loser mouthpiece for the whole thing. <laughs> the well, one thing is, uh, who talked when about I <laughs> when I saw the most recent totals and and you'll have to give me the current totals, but um, I, you know, Rex stinks is doing very poorly. Clearly, when you were just in Chicago, a lot more people thought you stunk than now think you yeah. stink. <laughs> Yeah, it seems maybe they haven't gotten enough of me yet or something because I'm quite confident that I do stink. But I, uh, uh, yeah, right now the have you even broken a thousand yet? 
the rock no it was only like three or we've raised uh what we're pushing 17 grand at this point and i think only like maybe three four hundred of that is coming from the rex stinks team which is just embarrassing for people who dislike me i, I really have to say i uh I mean, I dislike me and, and, you know, well, I, I, since I just you've don't been know what's at, going on. Since you've been at USA Today, have you gotten less hate mail than you used to get before? Um, or are well, the people you know, who hate you just cheaper than the people who hated you here? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> could, could be. I'm not exactly sure. Well, now, uh, there was a – I'd been at the Tribune for a long time, so there was sort of a built-in – uh, group of people who at least were familiar with me, whether they liked me or not. Um, so here it's it's different. I've been there since what the end of February, and and it's a very different audience because it's all over there, international, really. So um, you know, there's an element of that certainly to it. But but what's funny is my my columns at the Tribune always had my email at the bottom. My USA Today columns have my social pages, Twitter and Facebook, at the bottom. Uh, to email me, there's like a thing you can click and it'll take you to the next step. But that the presence of that one extra step uh, has slowed the email tremendously. Like, it's kind of funny. Like the people will, you know, they'll quickly fire something off if it's right there, I guess. But uh, if not, they, that one extra step is a lot. So the hate mail, you know, I'm definitely getting it, but more of my hate is coming in through social media. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I got to tell you, I'm one of those people, um, you know, because I read a lot of journalists, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, they'd be a great guest. And I get to the bottom of the article and there's like no contact information. And then I scroll back to the top thinking I missed it and it's not there either. And then I'm befuddled, Rex. I don't know what next steps to take off. And I have a friend who's much smarter than I am. So sometimes I'll reach out to her and I'll say, you know, I read this interesting article. Can't figure out how to get in touch with the person who wrote it. And within like five minutes, she sends me an email that has like their mother's address, their address, their email address, their, you know, their Facebook, their Twitter. So I know that there are people who can do that extra click and figure out how to go. I am not one of them. So I would also probably start attacking you via social media. Well, I, uh, that's all right. Hey, as long as as long as I'm getting attacked, that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Now that you're on the national stage, um, the, criti- the critical comments you get, are they any more international or creative or cultured than when it was just us Yahoo Midwesterners? No, I, you know, I think Chicago is pretty sophisticated on the hate front. So uh, <laughs> we do. We're very good when it comes to insults. Yeah, I think uh, I think that the uh, the overall tenor of things has, has remained relatively consistent. Well, if people listening to us um, want to donate to either Rex Rocks or Rex Stinks, uh, tell us again exactly what you do. Sure. You go to feedingamerica.org backslash USA Today Rex, R-E-X. That's, okay. that's the website. It's also all over my, if you go to at Rex Hupke on Twitter, R-E-X-H-U-P-P-K-E, it's all over that. Um, uh, the link is, is all over that. I'm tweeting about it a ton. So uh, not hard to find. It's uh, the Insult Columnist Holiday Food Drive via Feeding America. And again, for all the Chicago folks who were uh, redonkulously kind in the past uh, in donating, 
when I was with the Tribune, again, the, the your donations will go to the Greater Chicago Food Depository because, again, it's based on zip code. So uh, it's a way to continue. If you liked being part of this before, it's a way to continue doing that. And uh, But, you know, if not, I, I hope people are still supporting uh, the Greater Chicago Food Depository. It's an amazing place, regardless of whether it's coming through this drive or, or whatever. I'm just happy to see uh, people giving money to good places. And, you know, whether whether it's due to the fallout from COVID or whatever the heck is going on, most of the food pantry people I've been in touch with say that they're seeing more folks than ever before. You know, even where I live, which is considered generally a, a pretty affluent area, we have a we have a local food pantry and there are there are it is used by a lot of people, over a thousand people, and I live in an affluent area. Over a thousand of my neighbors are going to the food pantry that's just a few blocks from my house. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I uh, speaking with the with the folks at Feeding America who really see kind of the whole because they're dealing with food banks across the country. They they're saying that met, not all, but any of the food banks and that is higher than the that it was during the peak of the pandemic, which is pretty striking. I mean, so, so, and, and that's because, you know, we came out of the, well, <laughs> we sort of came out of the pandemic, depending on how you want to look at it. Still, still going on uh, in a lot of ways, but we think we opened back up, let's put it that way. And, uh, but then inflation drove up food prices so much. And of course people were still dealing with the after effects of, you know, downsizing and losing jobs during the pandemic and, and that sort of thing. So as bad as it was during the pandemic, when a lot of people couldn't work at all, uh, it's in some places it's it's worse now. The demand is, is higher. So uh, it is, you know, it's really, it, it's amazing to me, honestly, that in this country, this is such a big problem. I mean, it's, a, it's always a problem. I mean, there's the, the number of people who rely on food pantries, is is just enormous, and and the fact that we can't give everyone the, the means to, and the you know, pay them enough to not have to make decisions between putting food on the table or paying rent or deal having a medical emergency that they have to deal with, and 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 still having enough money to feed their kids is, is I think shameful. But um, anyway, a lot of a lot of people rely on food banks, food pantries, and again, there's this misconception I think that. Some people see uh, food pantry is uh, uh, something that a someone who's you know re- like endemic poverty, like they're, you know they're all they're always at the food pantry or something. That's just part of being uh, someone who's poor is the way people see it. But the truth is, a lot of people who you know they're they're relatively stable until something happens, right? Mm-hmm. So like they're, they're getting by just fine, but then. Until that one medical bill happens or until their car needs new tires or something like Mm -hmm. that. Yep. Right. So you have a lot of people who just will occasionally go to a a food pantry because it's a uh, it's a bridge to get them through a rough spot. And then, you know, they settle back and then they aren't using the food pantry. But 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 absent those food pantries, though, all of those people would be really messed. I mean, it'd be terrible. Like they they Mm -hmm. would not have that bridge. So it's really crucial. My neighbors do a really cool thing. Um, Every time they go grocery shopping, if they see like there'll be a special in the grocery store, you know, like, you know, buy five, get five, three free or something like that. 
they will take it, even though there's just the two of them and they're retired, they take advantage of those offers and then they take all the extra stuff after they leave the grocery store. They go right to the food pantry and drop all the extra stuff off that they just got, you know, bargains uh, on, which I think is a isn't that great? Isn't that great? And it also builds it into your day. I mean, it's not just like, oh, like, you know, like people. It always used to drive me crazy when I was in television because there'd be all these people who do nothing all year round. And then suddenly every Thanksgiving, they want to go to a food, a a food kitchen and a soup kitchen and they want to serve food. And it's like the only day of the year. that they that they do anything like this and and frankly i used to talk to the people who ran the soup kitchens and they'd say you know what around thanksgiving you know we don't even need any help because all these people we haven't seen all year just suddenly show up like it's some kind of box that they feel like they they have to tick um but but what my neighbors do i mean it's just built in to how they function oh there's a deal on this great let's Let's stock up and take the extra to the food pantry. And they do it all the time. And I think that's kind of that's kind of a more practical and more meaningful way, in my humble opinion, to uh, take care yeah. of some of these issues. Um, Rex, we've got to take I a agree. quick break. I'm coming back with Rex Hupke right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Uh, It's just refreshing. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Is Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820? And I'm talking with USA Today columnist Rex Hupke. Rex, you posted something on social media that piqued my interest because you were praising the work of someone that I had never heard of. Um, you were talking about Leonard Pitts, who was apparently a columnist for the Miami Herald, and you you wrote that he was one of your column-writing heroes and one of the best to ever do the job. And I thought to myself, how did I miss this guy? Where where was I? Tell me about Leonard Pitts, Jr. Oh, gosh. Yeah, he's a longtime columnist uh, at the Miami Herald and, and syndicated. Uh, you know, he was also he was syndicated <laughs> back when being syndicated was a big deal still. And, you know, people would, you know, like Dave Barry and you know, would just show uh, Leonard Pitts showed up all over the place. Uh, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writer and just, uh, you know, the thing that uh, I mean, you know, the best columnists have a have a, a distinctive voice and, 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 an, and an authentic voice. And Leonard just wrote um, with that kind of a voice that, you know, just, uh, gosh, I don't even know how to describe it. Just, you know, it, it was just, uh, you just believed, you know, I mean, it was like you were talking to someone, you know, he just had this wonderful, uh, you know, fe- very fearless and, and uh, direct uh, style. And I, I just really uh, was always a huge fan uh, of his writing. Um these examples of him in my a class that I teach on opinion writing. I mean, he's just a really great guy. So yeah, he just he just wrote his his final column. Uh, he's re- he's sixty five. He's retiring. He wants to write uh, uh, books and that sort of thing. So um, 
Anyway, well, what uh, makes a good column? You say you use examples of him when you teach your class. What do you teach your class? We like what are the top three things that make a really good readable column? Um, Well, uh, there's different ways to look at it. I mean, one of the number one things uh, I think is is authenticity. I mean, you 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 know, if you are trying to be somebody you are not. then uh, you will, people will, will smell that a mile away. Uh, they will just, uh, um, you can just tell um, when somebody is not being sort of who they are meant to be. You, you, can, you can just not get away with that as, a, as an opinion writer. So, um, you know, that, that, that's number one. Number two is, is uh, I talk a lot about is, is evidence, is bringing, so, you know, my mantra for, for my students is nobody cares what you think. <laughs> Which sounds kind of, it's kind of a weird thing isn't to say that, for columnists. Wait a minute. Isn't that exactly what a, what a columnist is supposed well, to share with us? Right. But the, the emphasis is on what you think, right? So I, I'm not going to write a column saying, I think this is dumb and I don't like this. And I'm opposed to Bob, you know, I need to write a column that has evidence in it that backs that backs up the things that I'm saying. Right. So I, you know, I, you have to, in other words, your columns need, it's, it's an act of journalism, right? It's not solely like you're just writing of and for yourself. So you, you have to back up the things you say with, with evidence that supports what you're arguing. Um, because at the end of the day, people don't want to read just I Rex Hupke think this, they want to read, I, Rex Upke, think this because of A, B, C, D, you know, all of these other things and other examples mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So, um, uh, you know, those are just critical. It's just basically like having columns that are grounded in, in facts and in reporting. Um, and then the, the other thing is, uh, you know, I think um, compassion and, and, and wanting to sort of stand up for other people. Who, you know, I don't want to say. But don't you think that that's a that's a Rex Hupke thing, and maybe some of the columnists you enjoy? Because I'm thinking about Rush Limbaugh. Now he wasn't a columnist; he was a radio commentator. But I remember reading that early in his first, when he first started really breaking big, a bunch of Republican. Um, I don't know if they were what they had to do with the Republican Party, but they thought, oh, my God, you know, this guy, this is great. This guy's getting famous. You know, we can meet with him. We can find out what he cares about. We can feed him stuff. And they met with Rush Limbaugh. And they're the ones who wrote about this later. This was around the time of his illness and death. And they said, you know, Rush, you know, like, tell us what you care about. And and that's what we'll concentrate on. And And Rush looked at them like, like, I care about, like, whatever gets me attention. You know, it's like I have no moral compass or I have no set core values. I want to talk about whatever is going to fuel the outrage machine. And the guy who wrote this article said, you know, the, they all left there shaking their heads thinking, well, you know, like, here we thought we had this ally and he's just out for himself. That seems to be the antithesis of authenticity, and yet you cannot say he wasn't popular. He didn't have a tremendous following. Yes, I, I hear what you're saying, but that I, what he did is is far different from 
actual column writing. And I mean, he was just, he was really just, I mean, being a. You think it was only possible because he wasn't like writing words to be read um, in your head as opposed to screaming at you on the radio and getting you all worked up and angry. Right, exactly. Yeah, very different kinds of things, I think. I mean, he was more of like a pundit, you know, sort of. I don't know exactly how you would describe him, but uh, but yeah, and, and also, I mean, that you, fine. You can one can certainly uh, call that uh, you know opinion stuff, I guess. But you know, in, in, when I'm teaching my class, what I'm trying to do is is teach them how to do good, reputable <laughs> opinion writing. Oh, you know that! I mean? Oh, you want to teach yeah. them that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that stuff, that old thing. Um, so, uh, uh, oh, yeah, here, let me, I, do you have a second? I could read you sure. this uh, piece that, that Leonard Pitts wrote. Oh, you uh, know what? Wait a minute. Oh, we're right up against a break. Hold that thought okay, and yeah. read it when we come right back after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke, and when we were going to the commercial break, I jumped in and stopped Rex from telling us a story he was about to launch into, and I would love to uh, give you back the floor, Mr. Hupke. Sure. This is just this is short. I'm just going to read you the, the... Oh, now, now you tell me it's short. Well, you know, we could have well, done it before. Here I'm thinking yeah, that we're going to have this... Anyway, go ahead. Look, I never want to get in the way of a good commercial. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> So this was uh, published on September 12th of 2001, the day after 9-11, and it's the beginning of this column by Leonard Pitts Jr. of the Miami Herald. Uh, He said, he wrote, rather, it's my job to have something to say. They pay me to provide words that help make sense of that which troubles the American soul. But in this moment of airless shock, when hot tears sting disbelieving eyes, the only thing I can find to say, the only words that seem to fit, must be addressed to the unknown author of this suffering. You monster, you beast, you unspeakable bastard. And that is how you write the beginning of a column, my friends. That was the most amazing. I still get goosebumps whenever I read that. Yeah, kind of chokes, brings tears to my eyes, just those few words. Yeah. So that's why he, again, to me, is just one of the all-time greats at column. Uh, you know, when it comes to column writing, you put him up there with uh, with all of them. He's just phenomenal. And if anybody ever has a chance, I recommend looking up some of his stuff because really just a joy to read. Wow, that's amazing. Hey, one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about, um, we are, of course, uh, connected on Twitter. Um, but I saw uh, via your Twitter posts that you are also uh, trying to join the the newest place that's supposed to be replacing Twitter uh, post. And I also have signed up for post and I didn't realize that it was like a club that you had to be accepted into. Um, I'm on the wait list. And if I if I read this message correct, correctly that they sent to me, I'm number 24,051 on the list. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. where you are, buddy. Uh, but uh, how weird is that? Because, you know, I looked up Mastodon and I had a lot of trouble figuring it out. And I looked up Counter Social and those five different feeds simultaneously. People say it's easy to figure out if you give it some time. 
but I was um, I was just befuddled. One of the things that I most liked about Twitter, aside from the fact that there were a lot of the news people and journalists um, that I liked to read who were on it, was that it was so easy to sign up for. What's your name? What's your email address? Okay, hit this button. You're on Twitter, you know? And <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. Which is a, which was just exactly my skill level. Yeah. And um no. so are, are you uh, have you been in the time since you last posted this? Have you been accepted to post? post is it no, it's not it's, even post.com. It's like post.news which makes it even tricky. I went to look up when I was trying when I thought about doing this. I googled, you know, post social media and the first thing that came up was an ad for Twitter, <laughs> which I thought was which I thought was pretty funny, but yeah, I I had a lot of trouble finding it because it isn't and it wasn't an address that seemed to me obvious. So, uh, why are you uh, why are you applying to post and have you been accepted into the chosen few? No, I have not. I, I haven't even gotten that. something's going sideways, I think. I haven't even gotten an email like confirming that I apply. So I don't know what the problem is or if it's getting caught in my uh, USA Today, you know, email filter or something's going on. So I, I have a, a friend who said they're going to, they know someone that works there. So they're going to ask about if it's a problem on my end or what. But anyway, uh, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I, I mean, I don't know. Basically, like a lot of people, I've just been sort of preparing for the Twitter apocalypse and, and you know, sort of setting up a presences mm-hmm. <laughs> on uh uh, different sites, you know, just in case the whole thing um, either either just you know falls apart or or just becomes too intolerable to to deal with, and and it's a it's it's moving rather quickly, I'd say, in that direction. But unfortunately, it remains the most uh, powerful and effective social media tool for a lot of the kind of stuff I do. So, well, pretty much everybody on I follow on Twitter now has created one or more other accounts on different pages. And periodically they'll say amongst their regular posts, by the way, like, you know, I'm going to like, I've heard a few people say like, I'm going to hang on here and wait, you know, till the whole thing, you know, collapses. But here are the other places you can find me on social media, which I, I think is effective if I could just figure out how some of those other places how some of those other places work. And, you know, today, of, or like, I guess this was late yesterday. Um, I mean, aside from everything else that's going on there, Elon Musk dissolves Twitter's trust and safety board. Um, this was, um, these were mostly volunteer people, things like college professors or people from different walks of life who created this, the previous Twitter administration created this, and I believe they were unpaid. It was a volunteer job. This group of people, um, you know, from high positions around the country, all walks of life, you know, to weigh in on how different things should be monitored, you know, because it's a, it's a thorny question sometimes. You know, I mean, you know, it's, sure. it's not always black and white as to who should be, you know, temporarily suspended or permanently suspended um, and so they had this whole advisory board and the Washington Post reported that one hour before they this advisory board was supposed to meet on a Zoom call with Elon and whoever the hell else is left, 
they all got emails saying, ah, you know what? Thank you for your service. You're great. We know you're going to be great, you know, and thanks for a time sharing your greatness with us. But we really don't need you anymore. But you do you. And it was like this weird you're fired, but have a great life kind of a email they all got. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I've been one of those people who has had their fingers crossed that something would happen to pull the plane up before it slams into the runway. But I I'm beginning to think I should be looking for a parachute. Yeah, it's uh, it's staggering, really, the the damage that's being done. And and also, I mean, you know, I would like us to all. Uh, please now never again make the statement that Elon Musk is some kind of a genius uh, because what he's doing is bonkers. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers, like not just the way he's behaving, but what he's doing just from a business standpoint. I think Tesla has lost. Oh, I can't remember what it was. It's just an enormous amount of yes. money. The like, stock is tanking. Even when, the, yeah, even when the market's up, uh, Tesla keeps and, you going know, down. A little earlier today, I was talking to another Tribune columnist, Uh, Terry Savage. And I was asking her about, you know, at what point does the Tesla board or the SpaceX board say, you know what, Elon, you're really damaging the stock price. You're damaging the company. You know, you really have to take yourself to a lesser role. And she said that what I suspected, he has a lot of power over, you know, a lot of CEOs. They only put people on the board who they know are going to support them no matter what. So I don't know if it's a, if either of those companies has a board that would ever stand up to him. But she also was like, well, you know, he's a genius. And I think a lot of people think he's a genius because he's made a lot of money and he's had some success. But, you know, people forget he didn't start Tesla. You know, Tesla wasn't he's not the one who started Tesla. He bought Tesla from the two guys who started it. And, right. you know, um I think sometimes Tom Hartman wrote about this a few days ago, this idea that somebody either by luck or or skill or some combination of those two things becomes very successful. And then the assumption is that person must have been successful because they're so bright. Therefore, we want to know what that person thinks about all these other things that they know nothing about, because clearly they're brilliant because they made a lot of money. Yeah, I don't think that's a for more on that. Let me introduce you to Donald Trump. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that that's a real good metric by which to uh, to judge someone's intellect. Uh, and and honestly, the parallels between Musk and Trump are pretty staggering at this point. I mean, both of them, you know, were born into money, kind of managed to keep falling up. Uh, and now, you know, the way Musk is behaving just from a sort of almost like a psychological, you know, he's behaving like this petulant little brat, basically, and he's going hard into, I mean, you know, QAnon stuff and and just really awful things, and he shows no sign of of backing down, which, of course, is Trump's downfall. You know, Trump, I mean, if Trump had been smart, he probably could have, uh, you know, appealed to a lot more people once he got into office and, and stuff, as much as I dislike him. I mean, well, that's what everybody was hoping, wasn't it? You know, yeah, everybody was hoping right. that there's more to the guy than we think, or at least he would rise to the occasion once he understands mm-hmm. the gravity of of where he is and the power that he has. But um, 
That did not happen, Mr. Hupke. It you- sure didn't. And I think I think we're seeing and we'll continue to see the same from Musk. I, I think it's a personality profile uh, that that we have been ex- now dramatically exposed to uh, in, in two different instances of someone who just I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what the it actually is, but they lack the, uh, you know, ability to back down and, and to to sort of modulate. It's like they keep taking it's like a risk taker. You know, they just keep doing more and more risky behavior and because they can't get enough uh, off their, you know, if they just <laughs> if they go down or it's almost like an addiction. And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, I because Musk has escalated every step of the way. I mean, he has, you know, this has gone from. Uh, oh boy, this might be bad. To oof, this is starting to look kind of bad. To oh boy, this is getting really bad. To oh god, what is he doing now? I mean, is it you know, mm-hmm. just really, really unhinged. So uh, I don't. After you know, um, to- shortly after he got divorced from his first wife, the one who I think he had five kids with, and the, she wrote an article that was published in Marie Claire about their divorce. And, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, God, this is just going to be one of those, you know, revenge articles. But I was surprised because she wasn't mad at him. You know, she's her tone was very straightforward. But, you know, she said one of the things that she loved about him was that when they were in college, I don't know whether she wanted to be a writer. I think that's what she wanted to do. And he was so supportive of her. And you're going to be a great writer and you're going to do all this amazing stuff. But she said it was like after they got married that, you know, that he no longer it was like he didn't want any competition from his wife. He wanted, you know, somebody to take care of the kids. And, you know, he didn't want, as she put it, he didn't want a partner. He wanted like the little lady at home. And she said that she would go as he started to become more successful They'd go to these events where there was like Larry Ellison, you know, who's made a gazillion dollars a gazillion years ago from Oracle. And there'd be all these guys. And she said she noticed that the women who were with them were much younger, very beautiful, added nothing to the conversation, were not expected to add anything to the conversation, were basically there to be adoring arm candy And she finally had to confront the fact that that's what Elon wanted from her because he she's a brunette. And he kept saying, you know, why don't you go blonde? And so she started to lighten her hair and he was like, no, go blonder, go blonder. And she said, I I didn't like what was happening in my life and who I was becoming. And that's not what I wanted out of a marriage. I wanted a true partnership. But he wanted what he saw these people like Larry Ellison have. And uh, it was it was such a fascinating peek at what happens to a guy who makes too much money and starts to believe his own PR. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's uh, I mean, he's and just, this was years ago before he got crazy, crazy. Yeah, right. I mean, he's just a really weird dude. I think. <laughs> what yeah. Down to. And when you have that kind of money, you can manage to get away with a lot and you can burn your money however you want to. And that's certainly what he's doing now. I mean, he's absolutely just, I can't imagine. I would love to know what Twitter's value is right now versus what he, the ridiculous 44 billion that he paid for it. So, um, and at the same time, you know, his, his, uh, company, Tesla is going down the tubes fast. Uh, and also not for nothing, uh, you know, 
Mm-hmm. The brand is, you know, I mean, Tesla was pretty solid, you know, luxury car. And now, I mean, I think a lot of people out there, not everyone, but a lot of people out there, myself included, if I had the money, would I would think more than twice about I just wouldn't get a Tesla, period. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I bought a, a Tesla uh, at the start of a of the pandemic, you know, I wanted to I've I've wanted to go either hybrid or electric for a long time, and um, Tesla prices, interestingly, had just come down. They'd had some um, advancement in batteries or something, and the prices had come way down. You could actually buy a Tesla, a brand new one, cheaper than you could buy a used one, which made no sense to me. Um, and they had extended the range, and I thought, oh, this is the time. And now, you know, there was a time when I could have sold my car for more than I paid for it. But I'm wondering if, you know, what this is, what's this going to do to people like me? I didn't realize yeah. who he was and what he, the kind of nonsense he was going to be doing. Sure. And as a, as yeah. an owner of one of his cars, I feel like, Forget about the company. Forget about the stock price. You know, the value of my car, I feel like, is taking a hit. Because like you, if I were in the market today, I wouldn't buy a Tesla. Right. Yeah, exactly. I'm afraid you're going to have to burn that car. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, from from what I hear, once in a while, the batteries just explode. So maybe nature, maybe the universe will take care of it for me. You know, for a while I was reading this article about, oh, if you've got a Tesla, don't park it in your garage. It could take the whole garage with it. And I was like, well, you know, OK. Ray's got a car he doesn't like. Maybe the two of them will go together in a blaze of glory. I don't know. There you go. <laughs> you got to look on the bright side, don't you? The glass has got to be half yeah. full. Rex Hupke and I are going to take a break, and we're going to be back with more after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. I am joined by Rex Hupke, USA Today columnist. For those of us who knew him, loved him, and read him in the Chicago Tribune, he is doing his annual holiday fundraiser for food banks, food pantries around the country. Um, it is, you go to, oh, geez, uh, I just had this in front of me, feedingamerica.org slash USA Today Rex, and you can join the Rex Rocks, oh, Rex Stinks uh, competition. Um, Rex, you know, you pay attention to a lot of the political happenings in this country. What do you think of Ron DeSantis? Is he the new JFK? (laughs) JFK. Wow. I've heard that's what Republicans who like him think, you know, that he's he's like the reincarnation of JFK. This is actually very good timing because I I, just before I got on the phone with you, I uh, finished writing a column uh, about uh, I, I, the column is effectively declaring the MAGA movement uh, dead, at least dead in terms of a political force that can actually win anything. Uh, and that's evidenced by the past three national elections that we've had, all of which uh, was a pretty sound clobbering for 
for that kind of thing. And USA Today uh, and Suffolk and USA Today have a poll out uh, today uh, that that showed that uh, by two to one, GOP and GOP leaning voters want uh, somebody besides Trump. Like so, like sixty one percent. So anybody uh, or. No, well, yeah, that's that's just anybody. But then when you put Ron DeSantis in, he leads. They prefer Trump. Or excuse me. They prefer DeSantis over Trump by 56 percent to 33 percent. So he's definitely the the new flavor of the month. Um, but what what I find kind of funny about this is so the 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 Trumpism MAGA, whatever you want to call it, uh, theme, basically, which, you know, being pugilistic, bullying, uh, you know, harsh talk on immigrants, anti-LGBTQ, you know, complaining about drag shows, uh, talking about wokeness, all these kinds of things. These are all the things that did not work at all in, in the in the midterms that just happened or in the presidential election in 2020 or in the midterms of 2018. Uh, all the election denial stuff since 2020 has all been just absolutely soundly rejected by by voters just all over the place. I mean, you had Cherry Lake in Arizona, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, like all of these uh, attempts to sort of, you know, be a mini Trump kind of and, and ride that sort of stuff just flatly rejected. Um, and so now they now they say, hey, I've got it. Let's run Ron DeSantis. And if you look at Ron DeSantis, that's all he does. I mean, you know, he they the conservatives love him uh, because of how he handled covid in Florida, which was basically to pretend covid didn't exist. I, I think the tens of thousands of Floridians who died of covid might have a slightly different perspective mm-hmm. on that. Um, but even today, DeSantis was doing a, a big some press conference, you know, big panel thing on vaccines. And he's he's asking the Florida Supreme Court to allow him to a panel impanel a grand jury to investigate the vaccine companies uh, claiming basically that the vaccines are deadly. And I'm like, what are you look? And look, this is and this is the big problem is whether it's that kind of anti-vax covid nonsense, whether it's Hunter Biden's laptop uh, whether it's the Twitter files that, you know, Elon Musk and Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss have been tweeting all about all this, you know, shadow banning and blah, blah, blah. If you go to a store pretty much anywhere in America, even in the most like red areas imaginable, and you go up and say, hey, what do you think about Hunter Biden's laptop? You worried about that? They're going to be like, what are you talking about? No, really? <laughs> I mean, this stuff is so red hot in a bubble of like kind of right-wing nuttery uh but outside of that nobody nobody cares like there was not exit polling from the midterms that showed people very concerned about you know like inflation gas prices and hunter biden's laptop i mean it just didn't (laughs) like it didn't show up none of this stuff shows up because it's all completely kooky so desantis a has the charisma of a um unpleasant toad and well you know that's i've been reading i don't except for you know uh, brief clips here and there i try to avoid ron desantis but people who have followed him and have gone to his speeches and events say you know everybody 
you wait till you you think you like Ron DeSantis. Wait till you get to know him. Wait till you hear him speak. You know, just exactly what you said. He has negative charisma. He sucks charisma out of the room. And, you know, yeah, Yeah, he's a jerk. He just comes off. He comes off flatly just as a jerk. Uh, Yeah. And he's a bully. And he's unpleasant. Right. And so I've been I actually I started putting this I don't know, like a year or so ago. I, I started sending tweets saying this because I want to put my flag down. <laughs> I kept saying, you put Ron DeSantis on a national stage and people are going to hate him. They are absolutely going to hate him. Now, Trump carried, I can't stand Trump, but Trump had celebrity, you know, whether you like it or not, the, you know, the apprentice was a huge show for like, a, mm-hmm. it sounded like a huge, <laughs> was a huge <laughs> show for like a decade. Uh, and you know, he's been in pop culture all over the place. I mean, everybody kind of knew Trump, the name and blah, blah, blah. So there was this mystique about it. So he had that celebrity power and I don't get it personally, but to some people he is charismatic and they like it. So, but (laughs) DeSantis is not DeSantis is, like I said, I think a toad is the best. And with all due respect to toads, uh, (laughs) yeah, really, Describing him, so you know, you, so what you're, what they're talking about right now is, okay, we see the error of our ways, we will move past Trump and instead put a infinitely less likable character in to do the same stuff that everybody just rejected. I mean, it's just absolutely bananas. So I, I really think, and that's and that's overlooking the fact that. Trump's not going away quietly anyway. So if they Oh no, 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 no. He's definitely not. And I think he's I think he's the kind of guy that whoever if he does if he's not the nominee, whoever is the nominee, he will do his best to bloody that person. Absolutely. Well he's already started it on DeSantis a little bit and and, um, so yeah, no, I mean either Trump either uh, eviscerates the GOP nominee and encourages his his people, quote unquote, to stay home, or he breaks off as an independent and then pulls his mm-hmm. voters away from the whoever the main Republican candidate is. In which case, the Democrats are going to. I mean, it's just a slam dunk. So um, it's a bad. I, uh, I, it, I as a Democrat. <laughs> As a liberal who generally supports Democratic politicians, uh, I have seen Democrats shoot themselves in the foot so many times that I have—I rarely have any confidence. But one thing I can confidently say is that the Republicans are in a real pickle right now, and uh, and Ron DeSantis is not going to be the answer to, to their dilemma. They they need what I'm arguing in this column that's going up tomorrow is I think they need their own Joe Biden. I don't think they have one. Anyway, Rex, we're up against it with news. I love talking to you. It's been too long. Thank you for being here. Good luck with the Rex Rocks, Rex Stinks, um, and uh, have a great holiday. You do the same, and thank you to everybody in Chicago for always supporting that food drive and everything. I really appreciate it, and I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday. Thank you, Rex. Uh, We're going to break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This hour of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. 
It's chips and guac time at Whole Foods Market. Get four large avocados from Mexico for just $4.50 with Prime through December 13th, while supplies last. Shop in-store or online. Terms apply. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Sorry, I just forgot to turn my mic on, Andy. That's because I'm a radio professional. Um, We are very pleased to be joined once again by William Howell, who's the University of Chicago professor in American politics at the Harris School of Public Policy. And his title goes on so much longer than that, but I just don't have the breath for it right now. Perhaps I can work it in a little bit later. William, how are you? I'm great, Joan. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing remarkably well. You know, I, you're, you're much younger than me, but I can tell you in the olden days, the, a time around the holidays, time in the summer, you know, there was nothing going on. There was, you know, when you were, when I was in the journalism business, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, let's see, let's do a feature story on the animals at the zoo. Because there's nothing happening. I, that hasn't been the case for a very long time. The world got faster and more stuff started happening more often. Those, like, this should be, this is December. This should be the kind of time where people are looking around going, oh my God, there's nothing to report. And, and instead, at the beginning of every day, I look at my notebook and I'm like, I'm never going to get to all this. It just, yeah. you know, it isn't, it isn't yeah. going to fit. Do you remember, um, like standing in line at the bank and feeling bored for like 20 minutes. And all, all we would do is just stand there. There was no fussing on the phone. There, you didn't necessarily even know anybody. You would just stand for 20 minutes and just kind of look around. And that was part of living. But no, no, all that's gone, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. So let's... Let's dive into it, Joan. Um, right. I was just talking with Rex Hupke, who's a columnist for USA Today, and we wrapped up talking about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and the question of whether or not MAGA is dead. I know that a lot of people are saying, well, Trump's on the way out, but does that necessarily mean MAGA is dead? And I, cause I remember before the midterms, there was a woman who was running for state office, not in Illinois, a, a redder state, and she didn't get Donald Trump's endorsement. And she very publicly said, you know, MAGA is bigger than Donald Trump. You know, he may have sort of kicked it off or gotten it attention, but it now exists separate from him. And basically, I don't need his endorsement because, you know, MAGA has moved on from being simply the creation of one person. So what do you think about that? Is MAGA dead? Is it dying? And where does Donald uh, Trump fit into that? Well, it's, boy, there's, there are lots of dimensions to that. I, um, I guess I would say that MAGA, it's hard to disentangle MAGA from um, Trump insofar as make America great again was the uh, was you know the the line that he used to run for office and he wore on his hat and he put that into circulation um, uh, so it's hard to it's hard to sort of cleave one from the other but what I will say is um, that the signs right now point towards Trump's standing in the Republican Party being diminished. So we can talk about that. But 
what what I would call populism, which is the kind of uh, underbelly of MAGA, um, and and embodies anger and disaffection and distrust in government and a frustration with the direction of our country um, and a kind of reactionary politics. Uh, there, there aren't a whole lot of signs of that going away anytime soon because the fundamentals in important ways support, continue to support it, even though, even as Trump's on his heels as a as a political force unto himself. OK, a lot of Donald Trump's um, endorsed candidates. He endorsed 16 candidates, two of them won, 14 of them lost. So people are really, you know, pointing fingers like he just doesn't have that power anymore. But in Illinois, we saw something that happened in a lot of states where the very far right section of the Republican Party ran challengers in the Republican primaries for against Republicans, a a couple of Republicans, more than a couple in the um, state house down in Springfield were challenged by candidates who were farther right. Darren Bailey, pretty darn far right. And the Republican Party, as it exists in Illinois, elected those folks to be on the ballot over more moderate folks. Then when the majority of the people weighed in, most of those real radical voices went down to defeat. If populism continues to put people on the ballot who are out of step with the majority of the country, will populism die? Um, It may um, for, I think, two reasons. Um, So let me talk. let Let me identify those. Um, uh, but then, but I think the thing that we should keep in mind is that boy populism can do a lot of damage in the interim, right? I mean, to say that it may be on its way out isn't to say that it's not going to leave an indelible mark on our politics that it's going to be uh, we're, we're going to be reckoning with for a while. But let me point to the two things that suggest that um, that. Uh, that it that it may be on uh, on its heels. One um, is that there actually is a, a quite a bit of research in um, really good research within political science that shows that typically um, when people run for office, um, there are advantages to moderation. Um, that is, extremists tend to do. Poor, uh, do not to do as well than would an equivalent moderate running for office, and that's true on the left, and it is on the right as well. Um, and so, while you may a party then that stakes its future on political extremism is one that's going to have a hard time at the ballot box. There's just really good research showing as much. The other piece, though, is that you know populism. The appeal of populism is about you know calling out a broken political order and sowing all kinds of anger and disaffection about um, its failures. At some point, though, um, people who run on any banner ultimately need to deliver. And, um, and in that sense, you know, populism burns hot and bright, uh, but, but because, precisely because it, it doesn't ever get around to the task of problem solving, doesn't ever get around to the task of actually trying to fix the system and make it more responsive and more and, and, and to better attend to the, the, the wills and interests of, of the broader public mean that um, its, its whole game is about, is about fomenting anger. And that, that only takes you so far politically. I mean, 
but, but then, okay, so those are, those are, I think, are the two reasons why I think it's not here. It's not going to be around forever. But, again, circle back to my initial point, which is that, um, boy, it can do a lot of damage in the interim. Um, and uh, and even when it, is on, when it is on its out, our ability to restore democracy, bring the country back together, um, cultivate some trust, be able to begin to speak meaningfully across difference, that's going to take that's going to take some time. Okay, Uh, I have more questions. Um, As we wrapped up our conversation, uh, Rex Hupke and I were um, we're we're having some fun trashing Ron DeSantis. So I want to talk to you (laughs) about other parts of the Republican Party when we come right back after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Professor William Howell, who is the Sidney Stein Professor in American Politics at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy, a professor in the Department of Political Science and the College, and the director of the Center for Effective Government. Woo! It's a lot of stuff, isn't it, Joan? God, man, I hope they pay you for each and every one of those jobs. Because <laughs> oh, if so, then you are doing pretty well for a professor at a university. Um, I wanted to, I told you Rex Hupke and I uh, wrapped up our hour by uh, talking about Ron DeSantis, who uh, some people in the Republican Party think is Donald Trump only better. And yet a lot of the pundits uh, who have followed his career say, you know, the only reason people like Ron DeSantis is because they haven't really been exposed to him. And that if he does try to take the national stage and really shows people who he is, uh, that his popularity will probably drop one of our uh, listeners uh, texted in or, or talked to Andy Miles back at the studio and said, you know, uh, sort of like, why are we counting Liz Cheney out? I think that there is definitely a future for Liz Cheney, but I don't know that it's 2024. Do you think the Republican Party could possibly embrace her that soon? I, I, I'm with you in being a little skeptical of that. There's nothing about the Republican Party that has reckoned with the content of Trump. I think to the extent that he's on his way out, which would open up a space for a Liz Cheney, um, it's because he uh, doesn't pull as much political weight as he did before. It isn't because they have, you know, reread the historical record and said, boy, that was a terrible, terrible mis- mistake and we must mend our ways. Um, and I think the the attraction of somebody like DeSantis is somebody who who can offer um, uh, a lot of outrage um, and can push some of the similar, similar buttons, but without all of the illegality and without the antics and the nonstop um, need for personal affirmation um, and a greater level of discipline. And he's a, he's a smarter man. So like he has some, some strengths. I'm interested. I mean, do, do you think like the, the last midterm election was very good for DeSantis. Um, and the, if anybody knows him, it's the people of Florida and they, they reelected him overwhelmingly. So, 
Okay, well, here's the thing, though. I think that... I think that the people of Florida are are really a, a sort of a special group, uh, not necessarily representative of the rest of, of the country. And I think that as time goes on, I feel like we're seeing more and more of what you describe as antics from Ron DeSantis. I mean, this move recently to invest the pe- or investigate the people who make COVID vaccines. I mean, all all of the, you know, I mean, he was made terrible fun of when he went to some areas that were flooded and he he dressed like like something out of GQ. He had these white knee length boots on. And I I don't know that I, I, I think that maybe he hasn't had a chance to share the full extent of his antics with us. I don't I don't see him. As you know, people used used to say to me, "Well, he's like Trump, only he's more dangerous because he's smarter." I don't know. I mean, we're going to open an investigation into the people who make COVID vaccines. How is that yeah. a winning? How is that a winning gambit? Except right. to the oh, crazy the people of Florida. Thing. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, for a long time, we thought about Florida as being a swing state. It's less and less so, but it's still, you know, it's still in the uncertain column. Um, and he's done awfully well there. So, um, but I take your point. Florida is is certainly shifting red and things that play well in one state do not necessarily play well on a national stage. Um and uh, so we are – it would be much too premature to say, well, Trump's out, DeSantis is in. Um, and also we shouldn't count Trump out that, yeah, bad – Exactly. A um, lot of Jonathan, legal problems, but – Jonathan yeah, Last yeah. wrote a column a few weeks ago, and, you know, when the whole midterm first happened and everybody was like, oh, you know, everybody's turning their back on Trump – Jonathan Last, who is a former Republican, now just a conservative, I guess, uh, wrote a column and said what disturbs him about that is people aren't saying that they are rejecting Donald Trump or turning their back on Donald Trump because he is unfit to be president. And he was an unfit president when he had that power. He would be unfit again because he has no character. He has uh, he is an amoral man. He said what the what he hears from Republicans is. Oh, well, we're turning our back on Trump because he backed a lot of candidates who lost. And he said the problem with that is what if Trump does what he did before when he first entered the race in 2016? You know, and there was like 14 Republicans. Everybody was like, he's a joke. Uh, he'll be drummed out. And one by one, he took them all down. And if yep. he shows that kind of power, if people start showing up to his rallies again, if your only reason for opposing him is that he's a loser and he no longer looks like a loser, then all of those people are going to fall in line again. That was Jonathan Last's argument, because it wasn't it's it's there. It's a conditional rejection. I completely agree. I completely agree. And in and, and my own sense, we were, you, you were mentioning Liz Cheney earlier. I think there needs to be something of a reckoning within the Republican Party, wherein there is a substantive rejection, a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism um, in order to open up space for somebody like her to step in and provide some real leadership. And as long as the rejection is qualified um, and only relates to the sway that, that Trump wields or not electorally and doesn't have anything to do with the content of his rule or the, or, 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 or the nature of his character, 
um, it's hard to see how she's going to get traction within the party. It's the party that altogether repudiated her, despite having um, uh, just superlative conservative credentials. I mean, she is conservative to her core. Um, uh, and yet and yet the party just this year uh, booted her out. So the idea that she's going to make a quick turnaround um, seems unlikely. She's a pariah at this point. I mean, it isn't just uh, it isn't just that, you know, she's fallen out of favor. I mean, she has been she has been banished. You know, you are banished. You know, she's been sent off to the hinterlands, even though she comes from the hinterlands. So I don't know where you send somebody like that. Um, but, yeah. Uh, and, and Adam Kinzinger, you know, the people were talking about whether or not he had presidential aspirations. And uh, he has kept a very low profile. He's still raising money. He has said that he wants to spend his time and his money you know, helping to elect moderate Republicans. Maybe he thinks if he gets enough of them in office, then he has a shot at the presidency. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Either, but that's a big difference between Kinzinger and um, and Cheney is that Kinzinger is a moderate. Cheney is not ideologically. Um, Cheney just refuses, refuses to um, countenance Trump and Trumpism. But that is not to be confused with somebody who isn't a, a stalwart conservative. We are talking to Professor William Howell. He's at the University of Chicago. I've told you before that he's written a great book called President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. But um, he was has been working on a new book, and uh, we will find out. I think it might be available. We'll have to talk to him about that and much more when we come right back after a break. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by University of Chicago professor William Howell, who wrote President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy. He's been working on a new book. Is that book the one uh, thinking about the presidency? No, that one came out a few years ago. Oh, OK. Um, uh, but but thank you for mentioning it. Um, <laughs> the one I'm working on now, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, the one Anytime. I'm working on now is uh is probably a year or two out um but i'm i'm up to my eyeballs in it and it's trying to think about how the federal bureaucracy how the administrative state has become an object of political contestation um and has that matters in its own right but also has led to all kinds of really radical claims on behalf of a more powerful presidency um so uh, particularly by the Republican Party, um, the, the, the administrative state was built for the most part by big D Democrats. Um, it's disproportionately employed by big D Democrats. It attends to um, uh, liberal sensibilities for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part. And that drives Republicans crazy um, and um, and has for a long time and has been uh, a real force in orienting what the party stands for um, and how they think about how to leverage Congress not so much the courts more and more, but the presidency in particular, in order to sabotage the administrative state. So trying to make sense of those politics. 
When you say the administrative state, are you referring to what um, MAGAs refer to as the deep state or something else? Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, that's part of the, the rhetoric that they employ is that it's the swamp, the deep state. It's meant to sow distrust. Um, I mean, simply the federal bureaucracy, um, which is, you know, employs millions of people to do all kinds of basic tasks in order for our government to run, in order to, for laws to be implemented. Um, uh, it's it's a feature of all modern states. Um, there's, to my mind, nothing nefarious about it. Um, we can disagree about the purposes of any individual agency, um, and um, and we can talk about how efficient or inefficient it is, or how its performance might be improved. Um, but um, yes, when I say the administrative state, I just mean I mean the I mean the bureaucracy, the 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 arm of the executive branch that actually implements the laws that we enact democratically. The um, the people who many months ago Donald Trump said that if he got reelected, he uh, would fire all of them and only put Trump loyalists in literally every civil service position, um, whether it was a, a political appointee or just regular civil service. It was going to be all Donald Trump lovers all the time. He hasn't said that recently. He also hasn't gone after the deep state recently. But I figure that's just because he's getting warmed up. And uh, uh, how do you feel about Hunter Biden's laptop? <laughs> is, is that the thing that we should be worried about? When we oh, think my about God. Democracy. Uh, yeah, it's, it's something, isn't it? Well, you know, it's it's like it's like the Republican Party, at least the most or the more radical conservative parts of them. They grab on an idea, whether it was Benghazi with Hillary Clinton. And, you know, most people, unlike you, unlike me, you know, they don't spend a huge amount of time thinking about this, reading about this, getting all the details. So you can you can really obfuscate. You can create this cloud of doubt and you can, you know, oh, Hillary Clinton, I'm I'm not sure, William, but I'm pretty sure she killed a thousand people in Benghazi or she or she led to their deaths. And I, I know, I think the same thing is true of Hunter Biden's laptop and what's going to be on it. Well, depends on who they're talking to. You know, is it going to be bad things about Donald Trump? Is it going to be conspiracies? Is it going to be illegalities? It doesn't it doesn't really matter. It's like they create a boogeyman. And so many people, I mean, I can't tell you, you know, you would think, well, most people don't buy into that. But I sometimes still get texts from people who are listening to me who want to know about Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah. It's 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 very frustrating. There, there are many reasons to lament the current state of democratic discourse um, and our inability to just train our attention on real problems. And it turns out there are real problems. There are big challenges that our country faces, and we ought to. And 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 you know and and the way to attend to them isn't altogether clear. And there are meaningful and very legitimate debates to be had about how to proceed. Um, but the decadence of getting, you know, immersing ourselves in the uh, the discussions about Hunter Biden's laptop when we face down things like a climate crisis, um, rising inequality between the rich and the poor, a broken immigration system, a healthcare system that it, that, that we that we pour 
way more into than we get out of. Um, these are profound and enduring challenges. And, and, and liberals do not have all the answers, nor, and nor do conservatives. But boy, we would do well to get together and try to find ways to talk about them meaningfully. Um, but instead, there are, you know, these arms that reach us and pull us into the gutter. Um, and uh, when you think about yeah, the health of our democracy and, and, and what stands in the way of us making making headway. This is this is certainly one of them. I um I want to talk to you about the new Congress that is going to be taking shape. Um, I was frankly kind of surprised to read in recent weeks that moderate Republicans in Congress have decided strangely that they don't want to be bossed around by Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Louis Gohmert and Matt Gates. that they are forming a block. I think they call themselves either the Main Street Coalition or the Main Street Committee, and they've made it clear to Kevin McCarthy that they are not going to simply let him capitulate to the far-right members of their group and create all kinds of chaos and nonsense. Um, but... But I think that we are, especially because the the Republicans have such a slim majority, I think that it's going to be really chaotic. And I think it's I don't see how Kevin McCarthy or anybody could ride herd on this group that we have coming into Congress. What do you think? How do you think it'll shake out? Well, I think you're right. Look, the parties don't all, you know, walk in lockstep and they're not all of a piece. Um, and there are there are deep divisions on both parties, frankly. Um, and but when you've got some people who aren't just ideologically extreme, but are but who are downright crazy and um, and anti-democratic um, uh, on your on your right flank and 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 you need almost all the votes within your party in order to advance an agenda. It's going to be profoundly difficult. Um, it, the, the the party would do well to clamp down on the far right um, because I don't think in the long term it serves. It certainly doesn't serve the country's best interest. I don't think it serves the Republican Party's best interest either. Um, and yet um, there's a reason why Marjorie Taylor Greene was reelected and continues to attract a ton of attention. What is it? Please, dear God, explain it to me. Well, I think there are two pieces. The one that we're familiar with and we on the left are are more comfortable with is that the Republican Party is um, an anti-democratic party. And she channels a lot of anger and distress and and rage. Um, And uh, and there's 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 an appetite. There's a following for that. Um, The but the. The attention that's given to political actors is a function of what everybody, you know, what what everybody decides to talk about and 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 train their and set their their sights on. And on the left, we too tend to, you know, when we think about well, what's the face of the Republican Party? It's frankly, it's easier for us to say, look at the crazies on the far right, and to talk about them, because the voice of moderates who are who who would challenge the left. In important ways, um, are well. They 
that's a, that's a that's a harder a harder kind of group to grapple with. It's easier to dismiss the far the far far right, and there are electoral advantages associated with doing so. We saw this in Michigan, where Democrats put money behind the really crazy far right people because they thought that they could win politically against them, which is then breathing life into that flank. Um, so I, I, I'm not trying to say that the that, that, that that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a, you know, um, is born of uh, the Machiavellian sensibilities of the Democratic Party. But I do think that that Democrats could play a part in also looking past her and finding ways to to lift up and speak to moderates um, in the party with which they disagree, um, that that would be constructive for our politics. There was, uh, well, we should, well, we've got a couple more minutes before I have to go to break. Um, there was a post by Jim Clyburn and it was, he was, he tagged Kevin McCarthy and he was like, Hey, um, Kevin McCarthy, like if you're having trouble corralling the votes you need to be speaker, maybe you should uh, get on the phone to Hakeem Jeffries, you know, uh, you know, Maybe there could be some Democratic votes in your favor. And yes, he was dragging him because Kevin McCarthy is apparently promising anything to anyone who will vote for him. But, you know, there's but there's actually I think there's actually a reasonable argument for that. You know, that if if, if he's making deals, you think that there aren't Democrats who would 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 want support for their legislation in return for a vote for Kevin? I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting idea that that can can a party leader rise to the ranks by secure by by disavowing the, the extremists within their party, but courting moderates within the opposition party. Um, uh, it's. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because for at least two reasons. I mean, I get, I get the appeal of what you've what you've just said. Um, um, but one, the parties have polarized; they're farther apart. Um, and two, Democrats are looking up and saying, "Is it the worst thing if McCarthy fails and fails, you know, completely over the course of the next two years?" Um, um, it would be good for the Democrats if he did so, um, uh, because it might lay the groundwork for them to secure, um, re-secure the House um, in 2024. Um, this is part of um, part of the challenges are that are, we face in our politics is in a world of bare majorities, there are fewer incentives to cooperate and go along with the opposite party because you hope by holding out today you'll you'll rise to power tomorrow. So. Um, I think those are countervailing trends. Um, but boy, if we could get to a place, I'm certainly with you, Joan, if we could get to a place where the crazies on, on, on the far right don't have the platform and aren't sucking up as much oxygen as they currently are, our politics would be better. Amen to that. William Howell and I, is, he's a professor at the University of Chicago. We are going to continue our discussion about politics right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. This is WCPT820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT820. I am joined by University of Chicago political science professor William Howell, and we have been talking about what I think is going to be a very chaotic two years 
in the House of Representatives as Kevin McCarthy tries to bring together a wildly varying sections of his party in an attempt to move forward. I think it's going to be a bit like herding cats. And it it makes me wonder if I, you know, I, I almost said what Jim Clyburn posted in in jest, but I it almost makes me wonder if rather what if you if you were Kevin McCarthy, would you rather get nothing done or would you reach out to Democrats to get enough votes to get something done, knowing that the right wing parts of your party are going to draw and quarter you for doing anything in a bipartisan manner? Tough call, right? Like, if I'm, I'm, uh, like, I'm uh-huh. not holding my breath that somehow he's going to be introducing a whole lot of moderate legislation that then is going to get traction in the Senate and also secure the president's signature. I mean, remember, he, the Democrats retain control of the Senate and occupy the White House. And so the thing, the idea that they're going to come in with a robust legislative agenda that has a much of a future is pretty unlikely. What they can do and what will be less divisive within their ranks is to launch hearings and investigations into all the atrocities, real and imagined, committed by Biden and the Democrats. And so um, I suspect a fair bit of um, uh, the agenda in the House over the next couple of years is not going to be around crafting legislation that stands much of a chance of being enacted, but rather unearthing um, perceived failings and and um, and uh, and and atrocities and scandals committed by committed by our sitting president. Um, but the but the moderates seem to understand that chaos because these investigations aren't going to go anywhere. You know, who knows if they would have even gone anywhere if they'd have gotten control of the Senate as well. But, you know, I think the moderates see the kind of pot banging, screaming out the window chaos that a Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to want to bring to Congress as something that hurts their reelection chances. And if you want to get to the nitty gritty, you get to what either helps me get reelected or hurts me when I want to get reelected. I don't know. I just don't know how much of that nonsense the moderate Republicans I don't know how much they're going to tolerate, and I also don't know if they have the backbone to publicly stand up and repudiate it. It's a toss-up. Uh, true, but but the critiques and investigations need to just assume the tenor of the crazies. It can it can also be something like. Um, you know, trying to figure out what the fallout of our withdrawal, our botched withdrawal of Afghanistan, um, um, you know, unearth what the costs of that were for the Afghani people. Something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and something structured in a way to satisfy the crazies, but that also the moderates don't necessarily feel is the kiss of death in participating in. And that call out a president who promised that when he ran in 2020, that you know he was the one who could finally bring the United States back onto the international order um, and, 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 and advance our interests abroad um, and just sort of chip away at his his standing. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't lead, would it lead to something tangible? Probably not. Um, certainly wouldn't lead to an impeachment or, or anything like that. 
but it would so uh, doubt and underscore the costs of decisions made by an incumbent Democratic president, and that that might be good politics for McCarthy. Because yes, it, it, I think both um, the, the extremists and the moderates within his flanks would would sign on to that, and it it chips away at the appeal of the the incumbent Democrat. Mitch McConnell implied some time ago that if the Republicans didn't take back the Senate in the midterm election, that he might just retire because, as he's said, it's, you know, like it's no fun not being the party in charge. I haven't heard him say anything or make any noises that that is still on the table. What do you think he's going to do? I'd be surprised, wouldn't you? I mean, the, 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 the table is set in 2024 for the Republicans. That isn't to say that it's in, in any way uh, guaranteed that they're going to claim the, um, claim the Senate. But um, there are a lot of tough seats that Democrats are going to have to defend in 2024. Um, and so they may well, the Republicans may well secure the Senate. And don't you think Mitch McConnell is going to want to be the one who's going to, uh, particularly if somebody other than Trump is running for the president and, and, you know, and maybe wins. Mitch McConnell's going to want to be there. Trump, he, he's no, he is no populist. He's no fan of Trump, but he's a decided um, kind of uh, conservative and, and, and a stalwart of the party. Um, so if there's a president DeSantis and that the Senate gets control of the Senate, boy, I'd be surprised if Mitch McConnell didn't want to be the one who's running it. Yeah, I suppose... I suppose that you're right about this. I haven't my in my career, I've watched politics, but I haven't paid much attention to ages. It seems like we have an awful lot of seriously senior citizens in government. I don't remember a time when there were so many 80 year olds. I mean, Chuck Grassley is practically 90. Uh, You know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Dianne Feinstein. Um, you know, I mean, the the list goes on and on. Our president is you probably know more about who's been in office and what the demographics have been. Are we at a particularly strange time with regard to octogenarians or have there, they always been there in great numbers? No, we are. I mean, we've always had a few people who are, you know, wheeled around and and who. Well, Strom Thurmond, well, they were like voting on his behalf when he was in his 90s. Right. I think he lived to 170 and he was, you know, (laughs) so, yes, there are um, there have always been. But we have a a gerontocracy right now um, that the the leaders of up up until recently in the Democratic Party, both parties were uh, considerably older than than the median House or Senate member. And that the proportion of people 70, 75 and, and, and up is just much higher than it's been in the past. Um, and so, yeah, a generational change um, awaits. And I guess the thing that I, 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 it concerns me is that, you know, running the House is, and maintaining a coalition within a party is really hard work. And you do well to invest in talent. And, um, and when the people who hold the reins have been around for a very long time and are unwilling to pass, pass them over, um, 
it, it can spell it can spell trouble. Um, so I, to my mind, it was it was not just gracious, but decidedly within the Democratic Party's best interests for Pelosi to step aside um, and to let some some younger folks step forward. Were you surprised, though, that she didn't completely leave? I mean, supposedly, once you get a taste for running things, just being one of the rank and file isn't as charming as it was previously. Or do you think that maybe maybe people asked her to stay on? Because I know that she's very respected. She's a strategic thinker. She's she knows how to get things done. Do you think it was a request from uh, other members that, you know, hey, stay on, you know, stay on one more term. Well, I mean, they lost the House, so she would be the minority member. Um, and so stay on one more term as the minority leader, a whole lot less attractive. And when you're as old as she is, I think you recognize that this would be a very natural time to step back. Um, um, so but let me push it back to you and to say, are there are is this is this in the best interest of the Democratic Party and how and there's 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 Pelosi, but there also is Biden. Are you mm-hmm. among those mm-hmm. who think that it would be in a Democrat's best interest for Biden to step back and to say, I'm not going to run at the age of 82 for reelection? My feeling is that it would depend. Uh, I don't see anybody right now in the Democratic Party who I think, you know, people are talking about um, Gavin Newsom. I think that eh, he's got some possibilities. I think he also has some some negatives. If there is a strong candidate, then I think I think Joe Biden would step aside. I definitely believe that if Kamala Harris decides she's going to run, she would definitely face one or more primary challengers. I don't think she has emerged from the vice presidency as a really strong candidate to replace Biden. So my feeling is more pragmatic. If there's somebody who really looks like they can, you know, take on the mantle and run with it, then I would be okay with that. And I I have to suspect Joe Biden would be, too. I think the reason he keeps saying he's going to run again is to just keep his party calm you know, let's not look at 2024. Let's focus on what we're doing now. I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard call. I think. I mean, the way you invest in the way you get talent is you seed space to people who may not have all the skills today, but when they're given a chance, they 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 step in and they grow and they demonstrate that they have skills that maybe we don't recognize now. Well, we've so, got two years for that to happen. Sure. William, thank you so much. The time goes so fast when I talk with you. Thank you for being here. Always appreciate it. Um, that's going to yeah, that's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Until then, have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night. <laughs>